Chapter Six of the Finding of Holgren by Charles Diffin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Heart of the Moon. In the grasp of the winged creature's bong-clawed hands, Chet was helpless. He was struggling vainly when they released their hold, and he felt himself falling into a pit that, as far as he knew, was a bottomless abyss. He was still struggling to right himself in midair when he struck. To fall even so short a distance on Earth would have meant instant death. Here, where gravitation's pull was but one-sixth that of Earth, he still struck on a rocky floor with a thud that made him sick for lack of breath. Above him was a pale circle of light. Tipping the edge of a vast crater mouth, high above was a rim of brilliance, Earth-light. Chet was suddenly certain that he was seeing the glow for the last time as the circle went black, and there came to him the unmistakable clang of metal where a door was shut. Through the countless mingled emotions that filled him, he was wondering what manner of creatures these were in whose hands he had fallen, intelligent beyond a doubt, in their own way, and he could not question the evidence of his own eyes and ears. They were able to work in metals and to seal the mouth of this lunar tomb. But he was still alive. He could not give up now. This adventure upon which he had launched with such high hopes had turned out differently than expected, but he told himself it was not ended yet. And instead of a lifeless globe, he found this a place peopled with strange half-human life. And, more marvelous still, instead of Holgren, whom he had come to seek, there had been a girl. Chet had recovered his ability to breathe, and he made sure that the oxygen tank was intact. And now he called softly into the blackness of this dark vault where he had seen her thrown. Are you alive? he asked. Can you hear me? For an answer, came quick rustling of moving bodies, the smooth rasping of wings on leathery wings, hands that fumbled for him, then closed about arms and legs and throat, while in his ears was a chattering of high-pitched squeals. Again he was lifted in air, held there in the grip of a score of lean, long-fingered hands. He was nerving himself to undergo without flinching whatever new torture might be in store. Yet he thrilled inexplicably, as through the sounds of these things about him he heard a muffled, Yes, yes, oh, I'm glad. The sentence was unfinished. Before Chet's eyes a light was growing, a mere slit at first. It grew to a luminous circle in the rocky floor. And as it opened, he felt the pressure of his metal suit upon his body, where before it had been slightly ballooned by the pressure of oxygen he had maintained. With the opening of this door to another subterranean chamber had come a renewed atmospheric pressure, and now, in the denser gas, he saw in ghastly silhouette against the lighted pit flying figures that floated and soared on outstretched wings of inky black. Beside him and above, he heard the swishing flutter of other wings. He felt himself lifted from the floor. 
He was being floated out above the luminous pit by the flying things that held him. No direct glare came from below, but a soft violet radiance. It shone full upon him, past him, to light up and give detail to those faces that had been featureless before. Chet had just one moment of fascinated staring into the diabolical pasty faces where narrow red eyes stared back into his. Then the squealing voices were stilled. One louder than the rest rasped an order, and Chet felt the hands relax. Once more he was falling down, down, and still down, until he knew that his velocity of fall meant an impact he could never survive. And curiously, as he fell, his mind was entirely unconcerned with his own fate. For himself he had accepted death. But he saw, for what seemed like hours, a vision of a familiar control room, and an Irish pilot, who sat by the controls. He was looking sharply ahead. He was checking speed. He was landing softly, safely, on a familiar field of Earth. That passed, and, following, came a feeling of regret, a deep hurt, and a rage at his own inability to be of help. Far above him, through the luminous air, he saw another body falling, and he knew that the girl, too, had been thrown to the same fate. Those eyes of blue had locked with his for but a few brief seconds. Who was she? What was she? He had no way of knowing. But in that instant of mental meeting, there had passed a flash between the two that had burned deeply in the Chet's real and hidden self. Chet himself, had he been in a laughing mood, might have smiled at the idea of affection being born in that brief time. Yet he might have asked instead how long was needed to bridge the sharp gap of a radio-powered transmitter, how much time was needed for anode and cathode each to recognize the other. Something of this was passing in confusion through his mind while his more conscious faculties were tensing his body for the fatal impact he knew must come. Without thinking the thought in words, he knew that the luminous walls had receded. They were more distant now. Their glow came to him from far above, and, as his falling body turned again and again in air, he saw that below him was nothing but a vast emptiness filled with luminous vapors that swirled and writhed. Then the last gleam of lighted walls faded. He was falling at terrific speed through a black tempest whose winds tore and screamed about him. It was his own falling speed that made these winds. There remained with him enough of reasoning power to realize this. And he waited and marveled that he could fall so tremendous a distance. First had been the great shaft down which he had plunged. Then, as it widened, had come this greater void. The crater of Hercules must have opened into a vast shell or a cavern of incredible depth. The winged things of the moon knew of it. They had cast him to his death, him and the girl. Her slowly turning body was not far away. It was as if they, too, hung suspended in air. 
while frightful blasts of whatever gas filled this space whipped and shrieked past and wrapped them round with a terrific pressure. And then the tempest ceased. Slowly the blasts diminished. The pressure relaxed. Gradually the sense of falling passed away, and with this there came a glimpse of light. Again the walls glowed as they had before, but far off in the distance. Chet saw them grow luminous, while he seemed hung motionless in space. Then once more they drew away from him. Once more he knew he was falling away from that light, plunging again into the depths he had traversed. And now, despite the oxygen that came to him uninterruptedly, he found his head swimming. The limit of human endurance had been reached. Desperately, he tried to bring his reason to bear upon this miracle that had happened. He had not struck. Instead of falling to his death, he had cushioned against something. He was falling again where, not far away, another metal-clad figure hung limply in air and fell as he fell. And with that knowledge, the whirling turmoil within his brain ended in a blood-red flashing that went finally to merciful darkness. The darkness still wrapped him thickly about when he regained consciousness, a darkness saved from utter black only by a faint luminosity that seemed to penetrate and be part of the air about him. Still hardly more than half-conscious, lying, it seemed, on a soft bed where he was weightless, he stirred and flung out one arm. From his fingertips he saw whirls of violet light sweep out and away, as vortices might have been set in motion by a swimmer in a more liquid medium. Fascinated, failing utterly to comprehend where he was, he moved his hands deliberately, swept one arm from side to side, and a number of luminous whirlpools went spinning out into space, and then he remembered. He remembered the terrific fall that had miraculously brought him back to a place of light like that where his fall had begun. He remembered beginning the second fall, and while he still could not know what it meant, he knew that he must have been unconscious for hours, and with that his thoughts came back to the girl. For the first time he found leisure to give mental voice to his wonderment. The mystery of it all, of her presence here on the moon, again he was overwhelmed with the wonder of his surprising discovery. It was nearly beyond belief. Almost he doubted the reality of what his own eyes had seen. But there was no doubting his own presence here in this strange place, the unreality of it, the strangeness of his own sensations, were borne in upon him. Where was he? he asked. What was this soft cushion upon which he rested so lightly? He tried to sit up, and found that he merely twisted his body and set other eddies of light into motion. Cautiously, he swung one arm out as far as he could reach. There was nothing there. He moved the arm down, reached with his hand beneath him, and still there was nothing tangible. Through his mind swept the gripping fear, a wordless, incoherent terror of something he could not name. Desperately he wanted to touch something firm and solid, lay his hands upon something he knew was real. 
and he flung out his arms and legs in a paroxysm of futile effort. He seemed hung in nothingness, an utter emptiness where nothing moved, only the ghostly whirls of light that ran lazily away from his beating hands until they died silently away into darkness, swallowed up in this unspeakable horror of soundless space. And when he had quieted again, he knew with a dreadful certainty that there was nothing there. He was suspended in a great void, immersed in an ocean of some unknown gas. The sense of loneliness that filled him was devastating. He could have faced death as he had faced it before, unflinchingly. That was all in the day's work, but here was something that tested sanity itself. Could he but touch something substantial, he told himself, it would help him to keep a grip on reality. Even to see and feel one of the winged horrors would be in a way a relief. His struggles had ceased. All about him the atmosphere was quivering and writhing with whirling light that swirled and danced and mingled, one glowing vortex with another. Then it too died, and, through the dark that was relieved only by the faint luminosity of the quiescent gas, he saw far off a point of light. Here was something to which he could pin his eyes, something outside of himself and the horror of nothingness in which he was immersed. He stared through the window of his helmet while the light grew and expanded into nebulous, cloudy glowing that faded and was gone. Again it came and died, and a third time. And then Chet Bullard swore loudly and harshly within the silence of his own mental sheath, while he cursed his own dullness that had kept him from instant comprehension. The light was far away, but keep moving, Chet called, hoping that his voice might span the void. Keep moving so I can see your light. I'll try to swim over. He threw himself over with a convulsive jerk and flattened the palms of his hands into a breaststroke while he kicked with his feet against the dense atmosphere about him. And he saw with delight that the whirling ripples of light moved back of him. He felt that he was making some headway, slight though it must be. He saw her at last and heard her call. I'm swimming too, she cried. How wonderful to see you. This loneliness, it's horrible, unbearable. I understand, Chet said. It is pretty bad. Then, at sound of a stifled sob, he gripped one reaching hand hard and tried to bring himself out from under the pall that numbed his own mind. He even attempted to force a note of lightness into his words. I've flown everything with wings, he told her but this is the first time I ever flew myself. Guess I was never properly designed. Feeble, this attempt at humor, but there was none to note the strained edge in his tone. Only a girl, whose metal-clad hand closed in a tight hold upon his. You can joke now, she said with a catch in her voice that showed how desperately hard she was trying to meet Chet's fortitude and force her own words to steadiness. That takes real nerve. I like that. Then she added, 
But it's hopeless, you know that. They've got us. And now that some of them have been killed, they will, they will. And the trace of Chet's strained smile that lingered on his lips, could she have seen it, would have appeared grim. Whatever it was you didn't say, I agree with. I imagine the finish will not be pleasant. Once more he was facing the inevitable, and, as before, he faced it squarely and knowingly, then put it completely from his mind. There was so much he must know before that adventure's end was reached. Tell me, he demanded, who are they? Where are they? How many are there of them? And where have they got us? What kind of place is this? Where all natural laws are suspended, where gravitation is at zero. And, for heaven's sakes, tell me who you are. Where are you from? How did you get here on the moon? That uncontrollable catch in the girl's voice had taken on a trace of brave laughter that overlay the trembling sob in her throat. That's a lot of information, she said, and I'm afraid it will not make much difference if you know. Oh, I wish I had some atom of encouragement for you. I do not know who you are either, and you have been so brave. You have come here. I brought you with my signals for help, brought you to your death. For it is death. This is the end of our adventuring, mine and yours as well, here at the center, the exact center of the moon. Ah, answered Chet Bullard softly, and understanding came to him. I should have guessed it. The atmospheric pressure and density, and we fell past the center, then back again. We've been vibrating back and forth until we came to rest at last. And now we die. Well, it might have been worse. He was staring out through the little window of his helmet, staring into the faintly luminous atmosphere, facing the end of his brave fling with fortune. It was an instant before he realized that there was something moving in the void. He pressed softly upon the hand he held and pointed. See, he said in a hushed tone, there is something there. It took form slowly, a shapeless round blur in the pale light. Inch by inch it drifted toward them, until Chet moved one hand abruptly and found he had created a ripple of light by which he could see more clearly and he saw before him a bulging, membranous sack. It had been smoothly spherical before. It heaved itself into strange protuberances as he watched. He flipped his hand to set up another vortex of light, and he saw the first rip that formed in the membrane. Before his staring eyes, the bag burst open, and Chet, who had wished for some substantial thing, even a denizen of this wild world, found his wish fulfilled. For the thin membrane tore, in a score of places, to release a body from within, a shapeless, huddled mass of chalk-white flesh, in a wrapping of black leather that unfolded before his eyes and became wings, which waved feebly in their first attempt at flight. The pallid body, supple as a giant worm, jerked spasmodically and turned sightless eyes toward the watching earth folk. Then, as if drawn by some magnet, invisible in the distance, the black wings began to beat the air, and the creature moved off in a straight line 
towards some unknown goal. Another of the membraneous spheres drifted past in the light that came from those fluttering wings. A second showed in repulsive shininess. Chet was aware that there were many of the things about. Eggs, he exclaimed, with a disgust that partook of nausea, and the damnable thing hatched right here before our eyes. And the girl gave the final explanation. The moon is just a great shell. They lay their eggs, these half-human creatures that you saw, and attach them to the inner surface of that shell. Then at certain periods they come loose and float away. I never knew what became of them. Now I understand at last. You know all this, protested Chet. How can you know it? How long have you been here? I have kept track of time for a while, said the voice beside him. Then I forgot it when they took Firthshoif away. But it must have been about five years. Five years of terror and vain hopes and wild plans for escape. And now it ends. After five years. And Chet Bullard, within his metal helmet, was repeating in bewilderment. Five years? Holgren left five years ago. What does it mean? Nor did he pause to realize that through his amazement was woven a thread of another hue, tinged faintly with jealousy that demanded of him, Firthjof, who is Firthjof, who was taken away? Chet's mind was filled with a confusion of questions that jostled one another to silence when he tried to give them expression, and there was little time for questioning. He saw other floating eggs, whose membraneous coverings had turned leathery and opaque, and he saw the white phantom figures who gathered those eggs. One came near, till Chet could make out the repulsive face and black, staring eyes with their fiery red center. It was one of the things that had captured him. He saw it move swiftly on broad wings. It held a leathery egg in its curled clawed hands, while its long tail whipped around and laid the egg open with one slash of a sharp spiked point. One more of the young of this horrible species was liberated and went winging away into the dark, only the whirls of light in the atmosphere marking the beating of its wings. Chet's eyes followed to see it far out beyond the light that expanded as it drew near. The beaten atmospheric gas was whipped to cold flame where some ten or a dozen phantom demons came swiftly on toward the waiting humans. They were swarming about in an instant. Chet had no time for even a shouted warning before he felt himself seized by their long bony claws. Then a net of rough-fibered rope was flung about him, and he felt it draw tight as the winged beasts lifted him up and out into the void. Wrong again, Chet told himself ruefully. We don't die at the center of the moon after all. But as the whipping wings drove whirling blasts of violet light back upon him, he could find nothing of comfort in the thought that some different experiences still lay ahead. End of chapter 6